Welcome to the church in Knowlesville. My name is Wade Owens. I'm the campus and teaching pastor here. If you're new, we're glad that you have found your way here to the church at Nolensville. We're in a series called True North, dealing with hard-hitting, life-changing topics where there is very little conversation happening, but we are endeavoring to deal with them. Let me ask you a couple of questions. Do you know what happened on July 4th, 1776? July 4th, 1776, the U.S. declared their independence. Do you know what happened on April 9th? 1865 was the end of the Civil War. Do you know what happened on September 2nd, 1945? It was the end of World War II. Do you know what happened on November 9th, 1989? It's the fall of the Berlin Wall. If you look at the top 10 things that have impacted U.S. history, you're going to find those on there, but you're going to find one other date on there, and it's June 29th, 2007. Do you know what happened June 29th, 2007? June 29th, 2007. It's the advent of the iPhone. The advent of the iPhone, according to historians, is in the top 10 most influential things in our country and in the world. Because here's what happened. It put the internet in your pocket. It transformed photography from a hobby to everyday life. It transformed how software was created and distributed. On-demand workforce prior to 2007 was somewhere around 300,000 people in our country that said, on a moment's notice, I'll go to work. Now, there is 7.7 million people working in the on-demand workforce. Why? We have an iPhone with apps. It says, I want this now. Perhaps... The scariest of all statistics is that gum sale is down now 15%. Do you know why gum sale is down 15%? Because the number one place they would sell gum is at the checkout line, the checkout counter. And instead of at the checkout line, looking at and reading the back of a gum packet, you're on your what? You're on your phone. But do you know what else statistically that scientists and therapists have noticed since 2007 anxiety is up 40 percent since 2007 the suicide rate is up 25 percent since 2007 clinical depression diagnosed clinical depression is up 37 percent in our country from 2007. The iPhone has changed our world. I'm not anti-technology, but how do we navigate it? Do, do we just reject it altogether and say, I'm not going to have technology around me? Well, hey, technology is a part of our world, whether we like it or not. So how do we respond? And in this series, True North, we've looked at everything from racial reconciliation, sexuality, gender identity, what is the gospel? And this week and next, we're going to look at technology. How do we navigate this changing culture that we're in? And over the next two weeks, we're going to talk about it. This week, we're going to talk about how the battle is really won in our mind. We're going to look at God's word. The battle of our mind, 
And then next week, we're going to look at the battle of our time. Because you can't deal with your time properly until your mind is rightly focused. So this week, we're going to look at our mind. And every week, we say, hey, true north for us is God's word. God's word is absolutely the one thing that doesn't change, doesn't waver. And so we, we, we point our life to God's word, and God's word points our life on the right path. And so we're going to find what Paul says in Philippians chapter 4, how we win the battle in our mind. It's in Philippians chapter 4, verses 4 through 8. And I invite you every week to bring a copy of God's word, have it on your phone, bring a Bible, but bring something to read the word of God on. I want you to know, hey, I'm not making this stuff up. And we're going to look at Philippians chapter 4, and I invite you to stand out of honor of reading God's word. Philippians chapter 4, we'll read verses 4 through 8. Paul says, rejoice in the Lord always, and I say it again, rejoice. Let your graciousness be known to everyone, the Lord is near. Don't worry about anything, but in everything, through prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God and the peace of God. Listen. If you don't think the one thing that's missing in most people's lives is peace, you're crazy. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Verse 8, finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any moral excellence, And if there is anything praiseworthy, dwell on these things. Back to verse 7. And the peace, the peace of God, which surpasses understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. God, you're the way, you're the truth, and you're the life. No one comes to the Father but by you. God, in a world where worry, anxiety, depression, angst is rampant, Your word is our guide to life and joy and freedom. Help us today, Lord, to find our truth in you. Find our peace in you as we navigate technology. We'll see that the battle is won in our mind. In Jesus' name. And everybody said? So we're talking about true north. And Paul is going to say that it requires two things. If I'm going to live true north, if my life is going to be magnetized to God's word, what we're going to see in these verses, Paul says there's two things that you need to do. Number one, rejoice. Number two, don't worry. Rejoice and don't worry. So if you take notes, write that down. If you don't take notes, what should you do? Write that down. Rejoice and don't worry. And both of these things are really, really easy to say, but hard to do. So what I want to do is I want to start with the idea of worry and I'll come back to the idea of like rejoicing in all things. And I'll I'll ask a few questions and then we'll look at biblical solutions. And the first thing that I want to deal with today is why do we worry? Show of hands, how many of y'all worry about anything? Worry, tests, life, kids, future, money, food, anything? Why do we worry? Well, a a non-clinical, non-biblical definition of worrying would be this. Hey, I'm going to envision the worst possible scenario in the future and then panic about it. Non-clinical definition. I'll be a prophet, but I'll be a prophet of doom because it's going to be bad. I know it's going to be bad. I know it's not only going to be really bad, it's going to be really, really, really bad. And I'm going to think about the worst possible scenario and then just freak out, flip out. And many of us just wear ourselves out to a point of worry. Where there are a lot of causes of worry. One, 
disunity. Paul's actually addressing disunity in the church in chapter four. It's a big part of worry. Technology that we'll talk about today. Urban density, just constant noise. Traffic, how many of y'all just get irritated with traffic? Yeah, amen. Traffic causes us to worry, primarily because people don't know how to drive. There's two things I think that would be helpful. Number one, I think you should have an IQ test before you get your driver's license. Number two, I think your license plate should be your phone number. And then when somebody like, you're like, hey! I'm sorry, I get a little irritated sometimes. Other reasons for worry, financial pains, hello. Fractured family systems. Can God heal these things? We worry. Success, success causes worry. Because you know when you fail, if there's a problem or you do something bad, people come around, they love on you, rub your shoulders, make you muffins. But when you're successful, people get irritated. Oh, no, 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 I should have earned that spot. I'm better than you. I'm the reason for your success. There's a lot of reasons why we worry. Have you ever thought, how do I, how do I know if I really am worried? A couple of things. One, unusual mood swings. Anger, it's a sign of worry, anxiety. General irritability. If your wife or mom buys your shirt that just says grumpy, that's a clue. <laughs> Exhaustion disassociation, just checking out like, hey, hey, are you paying attention? If your answer is, hey, not in the last five years, perhaps it's a sign. Difficulty falling asleep. Sleep, it's such a simple thing, isn't it? But sometimes when we worry, sleep is hard. And then we're laying there and we can't sleep. Then we get worried about all the sleep that we're not getting. And then we're thinking, now I'm going to be tired tomorrow. And we're stressed about all the future exhaustion that's not even there yet. We roll around in our bed and you can't go back to sleep because you're worried. Other signs, addiction to caffeine. I hate to bring that up because I love coffee, but have you seen the size of the energy drinks that we have nowadays? You need a pickup truck just to bring those things home. And now people, yeah, I'm worried, but I'm also excited. Now that helped. I think at some point in our lives, every person in here could think about an area in your life right now that you feel stressed, worried, anxious about. Life feels a mess. Life seems irreparable. It seems broken. And if you read Time Magazine or clinical journals, what they say is that you need hey, behavioral therapy, cognitive therapy, antidepressants, minor tranquilizers, exercise, alternatives like yoga, aromatherapy, and acupuncture. That list stresses me out. Hey, put your foot behind your head, smell something fruity while someone pokes you with a needle. <laughs> and listen, I'm, I'm all for exercise. I exercise all the time. I actually believe that good biblical counselors can provide medication to help people. Like, all those things are good. But they're not a solution in and of themselves. They're aids to a greater solution that Paul is trying to point us to. It's God's word. And he says, hey, don't, don't worry. Don't worry. And I know we're not supposed to worry, but, but I do. I, do. I feel anxious at times. I have two daughters. And I know that statistically, 93.7% chance they're going to get married and meet a guy. And right now, all young men are just hairy-legged little suitors one day. I was talking to my daughters the other day about getting married. And I said, hey, I'm... I'll be back. I have to leave for the day. I'm going to go marry someone. 
And my, my youngest was like, what about mom? <laughs> I was like, no, no, baby. What I mean is I'm going to go officiate a wedding. I'm going to go join a man and a wife together. And one day you're, you're going to get married. I'm going to walk you down the aisle. I'm going to take your hand. I'm going to put it in another man's hand. And he's going to love you like Jesus loves you. He's going to love you more than daddy loves you. And then you're going to live with him and you're going to start your new life. She's like, Mm-mm, I'm staying at home forever and living with you and mom. I was like, okay, well, baby, you live at home, and when you get older, you pay for the mortgage, you pay for the insurance, you pay for the taxes. She's like, sure. I was like, baby, won't you draw a picture of you taking care of mom and dad, and I'll get that notarized. We'll be fine. (laughs) But I get anxious thinking about their future. I get anxious, and Paul actually has a solution because the battles that we're facing are not purely technological. The battle starts in our minds. And Paul says, look in verse 4. Look in verse four. Paul says this, rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. And what's the word? Rejoice. I know what some of you are thinking. I can't mean what it means in the Greek because rejoice in the Lord always, always seems like a lot. Doesn't it mean on Saturdays? Doesn't it mean if we win? Doesn't it mean if things go well? That must mean what Paul is talking about here. No, he says rejoice in the Lord. And he says always. Wait, are you sure that what it means? Yes, I'm sure that's what it means. And he knew you would ask those questions. That's why he repeats it twice. Rejoice in the Lord always. Oh, Paul, that can't be what you mean. Yeah, I'll say it again. Paul says, rejoice. Don't worry, Paul. So what if I have a good reason? You don't. What if things are bad? Paul says, it's worse. I'm writing to you from prison. Rejoice. And rejoicing in the Lord, it's a very churchy thing to say. It's very easy to articulate and very hard to do. Because the reality is, life just hurts sometimes, doesn't it? Things feel broken sometimes, don't they? People fail us at times, don't they? Your life can be unhinged with one phone call. And Paul says, rejoice in the Lord always. Paul, how? How am I supposed to rejoice in the Lord always if life is as gritty as it really is? Paul says, well, keep reading. Look at verse five. Let your graciousness be known to everyone. And look at what he says. The Lord is what, church? So when you get a phone call and you fall to your knees and your face is in your hands and people are around you, You can say, God, you're enough. You're my rock. You're my fortress. You're my refuge. In the deepest possible pain, I can trust you. And even if my heart feels like it's not going to beat again, you're near. That's what separates Christianity from every other major world religion. Our God's alive. The grave is empty. We don't pray to nothingness. We pray to a God who sees and knows and intervenes. He's near. And Paul says rejoice. So that's not cheerleading. It's not spirit fingers. It's, it's deep inside of me. I'm not smiling, but I have hope. You didn't rescue me to destroy me. I can rejoice because my, my, my God is near. He's near to the brokenhearted. He's near. And then Paul continues to help us. Look at, look at verse 6. Don't worry about everything, anything, excuse me. Don't worry about anything. But in everything, 
through prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. This is how Paul says a follower of Jesus is to handle it. Don't be worried, but be grateful. And then with prayer, that's a worshipful attitude. I want to talk to my creator. Prayer. With petition. Hey, that, that's a special need. With request. God, I'm coming to you on behalf of this. With petition. Let your requests be known to God. That's how a disciple and follower of Jesus fights against worry and stress and anxiety. It's with prayer. What type of prayer? Supplication. God, would you intervene? Would you move? God, in this moment, be real to me. And then with thanksgiving. Why? Because Paul later said, the Lord is at hand. I can't see it, but you do. I feel worried, but your throne stands secure. And this is, this is what a believing heart trusts in. Even if things don't appear to go well, I know who my God is. And then look how Paul continues, verse 7. And this is what we're all looking for, the peace of God. We think we're going to find peace in some accomplishment, some feeling, some pleasure, some applause, some particular level of achievement that we get to. We're not going to find it there. It comes from God himself. And the peace of God which surpasses all understanding, guards your hearts, guards your minds in Christ Jesus. And I love the way Paul describes peace. He says it goes beyond your very understanding. Let me ask you, have you ever looked at someone and thought, how in the world do they deal with that amount of stress? Have you ever looked at someone and thought, how did that happen to their life and they keep getting up and moving forward? Have you ever looked at someone and thought, How did that not absolutely crush them? How are they able to move on and keep hope and keep faith and actually keep walking through when all of that just happened? It's because God has a miraculous way of meeting people in the moment every day right where they need him. And we're often freaking out about the future And we're not even there yet, nor is God's grace. Because God doesn't give you grace for your imagination. God's not giving you grace for a year down the road. He's giving you grace for today. So the reason why you watch people walk through all manner of tragedy and difficulty and suffering and wonder how, is because the Lord is near. The Lord is at hand and he met them in that moment. And time after time in my own life, we've gone through seven miscarriages, the death of my father, my grandfather, my grandmother, my uncles, two of my cousins. I have had a difficult last 10 years. And there have been many mornings I've woke up and go, I don't know how I'm gonna do it. And my feet hit the floor and God meets me right there. So I'll get you through today. Let's worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow will worry about itself. But today I'm here. The peace of God, God gives grace. And then he he gives us more insight on how to be able to rejoice because we have a proper understanding in our mind. It's, It's this intentional thinking about what's true about God. You have to not just be led by your emotions, but your thought has to lead your emotions. Not just emotional, but I have to have intentional thoughts. Let me illustrate it this way. If if I go home and I walk in and I see my wife, and as usual, I will just be overtaken by her beauty because she's awesome. But if I begin to talk to her like this, I say, hey, baby, your beautiful blonde hair, mm, it is richer than the purest gold. 
And, and your blue eyes, they are more blue than the deepest ocean. And your, your light-colored skin puts the most expensive ivory to shame. I'm sleeping on the couch. Because my wife has brown hair. And gorgeous brown eyes and olive skin. So even if my emotions are right, girl, you are beautiful. But I got to describe her properly for it to be true. We're so often led by our emotions, we're not controlling our thoughts. We control our thoughts and our thoughts control our emotions. We have to think properly about who God is. So true north, fighting worry, living in a world of technology, isn't just rejoicing and not worrying, but it's also intentional thoughts intentional thoughts. And that's what Paul is going to lay out in verses eight and nine. Look at verses eight and nine. Paul says, finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any moral excellence and if there is anything praiseworthy, dwell on these things. Look at that list. Put, put the list up there of all of the words. Put them up there. Put them all up there. True, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable. He doesn't just say think. He says dwell. Dwell on these things. This isn't a cursory pass by. This is, this is my focus. This is who I am. This is what I'm pursuing. Because when I pursue these things, it changes my emotions. The battle is won in our minds. We're constantly running after what's true. And I would commend to you, we're we're thinking primarily about God's character and God's nature. Not just the moral list of sins that we should avoid. We're thinking, this is who my God is. This is who my creator is because Christianity is more than don't do this, do this, avoid this, do this. Christianity is about who God is and how he saved us and called us to himself. And we cause ourselves a lot of pain when we don't discipline our thoughts because then our emotions run riled over things that just aren't true. Paul says, think on these things. And you're constantly preached to by a culture that's systematically destroying itself and us. And people all the time want to argue about whether culture is right or wrong. And I just look out and say, how's it going? There isn't much joy. There isn't much peace. But there's a lot of train wrecks. And Paul says, think on these things. And then verse 9, look what he says. Do what you've learned. Do what received and heard from me. So Paul's saying, I did this. You did this. And then again, And the God of peace will be with you. I know what you're thinking. This is what I would be thinking if I were in your shoes. Wait, I thought this was a sermon on technology. Well, this was a sermon on cell phone habits and being wise on the internet. Why are we talking about our thinking? Why are we talking about our minds? Why are we talking about honorable? Why are we reflecting on who God is and what God has done? Why are we doing that if this is a sermon on technology? Great question. And I'll answer you with another question. How is this helping you get there? If Paul says, man, we're to rejoice and not worry, and we're to think about what's true and honorable, 
pure, holy, and dwell on those things. And when we do, the peace of God is with us. How does a piece of technology help you get there? Technology is not evil. But since 2007, there's a 40% rise in anxiety, a 25% rise in suicide, and a 37% increase in clinical depression. A recent study done this year looked at 1 million high school students And they studied students who spent the majority of their time connected to screens compared to students who had limited screen time but spent more face-to-face interaction, exercise, socialized. Those who had the majority of their time focused on a screen were psychologically worse. Similar aspects of depression and anxiety. And then they tracked kids that weren't on screens as much. And then when they made the transition to predominantly focused on screens, their joy went down and their happiness decreased and they said there is a one-to-one correlation. So what happens is technology will insulate us from some uncertainties, but it leaves us vulnerable to the real big uncertainties because we're all asking, what's going to happen? What do people think of me? What if things go badly? And, and, and technology can insulate us from some insecurity Because we can immerse ourselves in a world that we can control and we can only consume information that we want. It can be very helpful. It can guide us and it can protect us and make us feel secure. Like you can get out Google Maps or Waze and find find your way wherever you want to go. Helpful, amen? You can read reviews before you spend any money. Before you buy a pair of shoes or you go to a restaurant or Airbnb and go on a vacation, you can read Google reviews. You can rehearse all of your job interviews using Glassdoor. You can check on your Evites to see who's coming. We can insulate ourselves and feel more secure, but what it does is it actually makes us more anxious. Even though we're insulating ourselves, it's the bigger things that we can't secure ourselves from. The political world is a mess. There's nuclear, bioterrorism. It's harder to find a job than ever before. All the dating sites have said it actually makes people feel like it's harder to find a mate because I found this one, but if they weren't the right one and there's a million plus people out there, technology has lessened our ability to actually navigate an uncertain world. We're less prepared to deal with ambiguity because most of the day I control what I see, what I want to know, and I control my world. So it's insulated us with a lot of security, but it hasn't prepared us for a world that, listen, hello, is not certain. So we're actually ill-prepared. And you combine a lack of dealing with small uncertainties with the expansion of big uncertainties, and it's no wonder we feel anxious. Then you take the compare and despair culture, well, you, you do know that social media is just the highlight reel of people. You do know that, right? Show of hands, let's be honest. You know that, right? It's someone's highlight reel. It is not real life. No one posts about losing their job because they got reamed out by their boss. No one posts about not being able to pay the electric bill. No one posts about getting kicked off the team. We post our highlight reel. 
And we put a parade of the best foot forward of who we are, even if it's not really who we are. And it creates anxiety and worry because we're scrolling through all the feeds going, I'm not going to measure up or keep up. It's a cycle of compare and despair. And next week, parents, students, you know, we're, we're going to talk about healthy patterns with our time. But I would say to those of you who have others under your influence, before you start putting a bunch of rules around them this week, I would remind you that kids model their behavior after their parents. And so before you dictate, inspect. Rules and boundaries are great. We're going to talk about some of that next week. But kids really do model their behavior after their parents. And here's what I know, man. I know that, man, I'm prone to grab my phone at dinner. I'm prone to check social media when I'm supposed to be sitting and engaged with my wife. There are times I'm wanting to watch YouTube when I'm at my daughter's gymnastics. Like She's out there performing, and I'm tempted to be on my phone. So this isn't a drive-by guilting. But the question is, if joy and peace and life and all those things are promised to us, how is this helping us get there? How is it hurting us get there? Because at the end of the day, technology is not going away. We just need to figure out how to use it responsibly. And the, and the battle begins in our mind. How does technology help you get there? How does it hurt you get there? And here's one book I would commit to you. It's called 12 Ways Your Phone is Changing You. And here's, here's the author's premise. Listen, if you haven't heard anything I say, listen to this. The author says that what's being unearthed with technology today is really just the age-old human heart issue. That throughout all of history, humanity has struggled with their own heart. Humanity has struggled to look inward and go, this is who I am. This is what life's all about. This is what's good about me. This is what's bad about me. This is what's healthy about me. This is what's not healthy about me. This is my sin. This is my shame. This is my struggle. These are my issues. This is my junk. All throughout history, man has not wanted to look inward. Because what we find when we're honest with ourselves, we don't like. I'm your pastor, and I don't like what I find all the time. And so all throughout history... We have found ways to distract ourselves and avoid introspection. And technology right now is just filling that gap. The gap of distracting you from what matters. Distracting you from the meaning and purpose of life. Distracting you from looking inward into your own soul. And that's hard, messy work. But the reality is, hey, life's not a game. God's got purposes and destinies for every one of us in here. And the enemy who is real wants to keep you from it. And so technology's not the problem. It's that's what we want to deal with our hearts. And so what I want to do in this space now, because it's church and it's a safe place, let's, let's look introspective for a minute. So I want to give you a moment now to turn inward into your own heart. And turn inward into your own mind. And I want to invite you to a time of prayer with me. If prayer is new to you, it's just a chance for you to connect with your creator. You may not believe he exists. You may not believe he's good. You may not believe he's true. But 
I'm saying to you, there is a God, and he is real, and he does speak. And my invitation to you would be just bow your heads, close your eyes for a minute. And you could say something like this, Lord, Lord, speak to my heart. Lord, search my heart. See, we don't always want to search our own hearts. This is one, we're not always honest. And two, we quite often don't know what we're looking for what's really the issue. But you could say, God, God, search my heart. There are people in this room that feel like they have it all together, but, but they know they feel broken. Or they know that chasing whatever they've been looking for is only gonna last them for a while. God, would you point him to Jesus, the life-giving lover of our soul? God, we worry and we don't rejoice. We don't choose intentional thoughts. God, would you help us to rejoice? Would you help us not to worry? Would you help us have intentional thoughts about you, our creator who left heaven and came to earth? was crucified, buried, but rose again, kicked the end out of a borrowed tomb, came back to life, the resurrected king. And God, you're resurrecting us. You're bringing us to new life. You're bringing us to new places. You're making us new creations. And so God, I pray that you would bring conviction and wisdom and insight into the heart of every person in this room. That one area of their life, you would speak to that area and say, don't worry about this. Or maybe you would say, hey, more of me here. Or maybe you would say, you need to respond to Jesus and come follow me. But God, I pray in this moment you would speak to the hearts of those in this room, that you would call them to yourself, that you would reveal and redeem and restore what's broken or hurting. You would save men and women that they would want to call to your name. God, we want to build our lives on you. We want to build our future and our destiny on you. We want to declare it and we want to sing about it to your glory and for your fame. In Jesus' name, amen. And we're going to do that now. We're going to sing that song, Build My Life. And I invite you, stand with us now as a church.